gain knowledge in life through study or through life experiences, but knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. And today on Truth For Life, Alistair Begg explains that true wisdom is a gift God gives us through the riches of His grace. We're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians called Grace and Peace, and Alistair begins by reading a related passage. Now we'll be turning back again to Ephesians, but let's read from Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, and Paul has uh, made this uh, argument so far, and he uh, builds on the strength of all that he said, that we're all accountable before God. Our mouths are stopped before Him. We have nothing to give in our defense, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. And then he illustrates that in the life of Abraham and says that that is ours in the same manner. And then verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience 
the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, grant now as we turn to the Bible that the Spirit of God will instruct and equip and change us to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, let's come back to these verses that we tried to make an attempt at this morning, verses 7 to 10 of Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. These verses almost defy one's ability to um, create a structure around them, and I want again to follow the pattern of this morning and simply follow Paul's line as it unfolds for us here. We ended with our thoughts dwelling on this wonder of the riches of God's grace being lavished upon us, the torrential, extravagant grace and goodness of God showered out upon each of us who by nature is undeserving. When we finished there at that comma, we still had left in verse 8 the little phrase, in all wisdom and insight. And I suppose it is possible that uh, that little phrase refers to God. That is, that God has done this in light of His wisdom and His insight. But I'm not inclined to that view, although it is held by some, because of the way it seems to flow directly into the notion of making known the mystery of His will. And so I take it that the reference here, in terms of wisdom and insight, is referring to the believer in Christ, so that not only is God the one who redeems and who forgives and who enriches, but He is also the one who grants wisdom. Now, the word in Greek is Sophia. He uses it uh, throughout his letters, and I think he does at the beginning of Colossians. Uh, Colossians 1.9, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And that, incidentally, is another reason why I think it, it refers to the believer. That is Paul's normal usage of the terminology. So, uh, the wisdom uh, that is granted to us is the wisdom concerning the things of God, the, God's revelation and God's plan and God's purpose. In other words, the wisdom that is given to us takes us into, if you like, the realm of eternal verities. Even though we know that we only see through a glass darkly and that one day we will see things and understand them in all of their fullness, nevertheless, God enables His children to see things that are not seen uh, by unbelievers. Now, uh, there were all kinds of notions uh, swirling around in Ephesus and in Laodicea and in Colossae, and there were all kinds of concepts about mysteries and secrets and Gnostic notions, in much the same way that they are present in our contemporary culture. 
And Paul is not tackling that, and he is not uh, giving anything along these lines. Rather, what he's talking about here is something that God enables us to understand by way of revelation, a revelation which ultimately for us is in the Bible itself. So, for example, let's say you go out tomorrow morning and you just decide you'll go through the community and you'll ask a simple question of friends or neighbors or work colleagues, and you'll just say to them, what is your life? What, what, what is your life? You know, people say, my life is my job. My life is my family. My life is my life, you know. <laughs> my life. You know, many people won't know what to say at all. But what will you say? You've been given spiritual wisdom. Well, you say that your life is a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You say that your life was planned, that you don't exist as a result of chance, but the Creator made you exactly as you. You'll be able to say that your life was purchased by His redeeming grace. In fact, you'll be able to say all kinds of things, and people will say, where do you get that stuff from? And you'll say, because of the riches of God's grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom. Now, we could do it in other ways. We could ask the question, how do you think everything's going to end in this world? How do you think it will all come to an end? And once again, you'll get all kinds of notions and answers and ideas. And you'll be able to say that it's going to end when the Lord Jesus comes back in power and in great glory. And they will say, where do you get that from? And you will say, from the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon me, granting to me wisdom. If you look down, if your Bible is open, you look down at verse 18. This is the very same thing that, he's, that he's, he's talking about, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he's praying for them now, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Your heart doesn't have eyes. It's a metaphor. The eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and here we go again, one of his favorites. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then he starts again, and he starts to build on it more and more. The eyes of our hearts being enlightened that you might know. Not only does God enable us to see these spiritual realities, but he also provides, along with the wisdom, you will see insight. The word here is uh, phronese, which uh, is uh, translated in the King James Version at least prudence, prudence, which, of course, is in certain circles another girl's name. Now, what is Paul saying here? Well, he's saying that that which is the wisdom of God that enables us, if you like, to see something of the vast sweep of God's eternal plan is then translated into the everyday experience of our lives because he also grants to us insight or prudence or understanding, so that we are enabled by the Spirit of God to take these truths, which may seem in certain senses to be rather esoteric or arm's length, and understand that they then are transferred into action, 
in the everyday events of our lives. So it is very, very necessary that the people of God would be granted this, so that they're not just completely clueless. And if you think about it, when we get into chapters 4, 5, and 6, what do we need in order to live united in the body of Christ? We need wisdom. We need insight. How are you going to love your, uh, uh, love your wife as Christ loved the church? Well, uh, you're going to need wisdom and insight, understanding. How are you going to submit to your own husband? Why would you even do that? You're going to need divine wisdom and understanding. It is all provided for us, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Into verse 9, in order that we might know the mystery of his will, making known the mystery of his will. In, in biblical language, a mystery isn't a puzzle that's waiting to be solved. It's a secret that can only be known when God reveals it. All right? It's a secret that can only be known when God reveals it. Now, if you think about the Old Testament, the unfolding drama of the Old Testament, and all the little, little pointers and bits and pieces that are going on there, even as the prophets themselves, under the inspiration of God, are prophesying concerning this one who is to come, this suffering servant, this great prophet, this triumphant king whose kingdom will never come to an end. All of these little secrets, all these little clues, all these little hints that are running all the way through the Bible that finally will be revealed in their fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if we put it another way, the mystery is not something incomprehensible to a human mind, but something that is undiscoverable to the unaided human mind. It is undiscoverable to the unaided human mind. And where does the help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the Spirit of God. Uh, in chapter 3, in fact, throughout the book, uh, Paul is on about this. Chapter 3, um, uh, for this reason it begins, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. It's actually a quite wonderful picture, isn't it? The mystery of God's will is, if you like, covered by scaffolding, is, is covered over by certain elements. But when Christ comes, the scaffolding is taken down. It is no longer necessary, because it is all then unfolded and revealed in God's plan in Jesus. That is why I think when Jesus has the opportunity to address the disconsolate folks who were on the road to Emmaus—and we've said this before, but it bears saying again—that when, in that amazing, ironic conversation with the two folks who say to him, Are you the only person, the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? If that is not the, perhaps the greatest dramatic irony in the whole New Testament, I don't know what is. They say to Jesus, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what we've just been through? And Jesus says, what things? <laughs> that in itself is fantastic. But it's not just a gesture on his part. He's drawing them out. Tell me, 
Well, they said it was about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet. He was mighty in deed and word. Before God and all the people, our chief priests and the rulers, they delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. And frankly, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And there were some women who went to the tomb this morning and found his body, but they they didn't see him. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Do you not understand the mystery here? Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What did they need? In order that they might understand the mystery of his will. They needed his written word. It is quite amazing, isn't it, that Christ took them to the Bible. He is the living Word. He could have said, listen, you you obviously don't get me. I am the Messiah. I'm Jesus. I mean, shake yourselves, fellows. Listen, here, look, here I am. He could have done that. He did it on other occasions. He revealed himself in that way. But he does a Bible study. Why? Because the confidence of heaven is in the Scriptures the mystery of his will, in order that you might know it. As Paul puts it here, according to the purpose, according to the Father's purpose, that he has set forth in Christ. Ultimately, as we're about to see, in order that he might unite all things in him. But the next phrase in verse 10 is, as a plan for the fullness of time for the fullness of time. What does this mean? Well, what Paul is saying is that when all the times and the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority have run their course, then all of this will come to fruition. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and the hidden things, and he knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. And here Paul says, all that is unfolding here as God in his grace has redeemed, has provided forgiveness, has granted wisdom and insight— has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose that he set forth ultimately and finally in Jesus as a plan for the fullness of time. Now, he uses that phrase, fullness of time, elsewhere. Paul does. In fact, back in Galatians and in chapter 4 is probably where you're most familiar with it, where he says in Galatians 4, 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God, according to the riches of his grace— to cross-reference it with our section here in Ephesians 1, has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You see how these things gripped the apostle and how every time he wrote, he was writing of them again and again. What an amazing thing it is that God would redeem us and forgive us and provide for us and uh, adopt us into his family. 
And at just the right time, Christ died for us. The point that is being made there in Galatians, of course, is that the coming of the Lord Jesus ushered in the last days. As we know, God has spoken of old in the prophets in different ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Taking that same notion, Paul now, in addressing the Ephesians, says, just as the coming of Christ uh, brought, if you like, the division of time once and forever, so we look forward to a day when God's plan from all of eternity will be consummated, so that every day when we awaken and every time that we reflect on human history and every occasion when we are tempted to be paralyzed by the forces of a world that is increasingly chaotic and apparently opposed to the kingdom of Christ, it is to the Scriptures we must return in order to retain our equilibrium, in order not to lose our way. Uh, it is on account of the riches of His grace that He has granted to me wisdom, uh, wisdom enough to, to see my house built upon a rock and not upon sand. Uh, Christ has become for me my wisdom, as He says to the Corinthians, and my righteousness. It is there. He has given to me this wisdom, and He has granted me this understanding. And I know what my friends don't know, that in the fullness of time, He will accomplish and fulfill the mystery of His will, and He will unite all things in heaven and on earth underneath the headship of Jesus. The Riches of His Grace. That's the title of our message today from Alistair Begg, and this is Truth For Life. In just a minute, Alistair will return to tell you about an exciting opportunity coming up this summer. But before we get to that, I want to remind you of a brand new resource we are highlighting this month, written by pastor and author Sinclair Ferguson. It's a devotional titled To Seek and to Save. For each day of Lent, you'll enjoy reading a passage from the book of Luke, a brief reflection from Sinclair, and thought-provoking questions and prompts that will guide your response through prayer and through journaling. Through it all, you'll gain insight into the heart of your Savior who came to seek and save the lost. Request your copy of To Seek and to Save when you donate to support this ministry. Give online at truthforlife.org donate or call 888-588-7884. That's 888-588-7884. If you'd rather mail your donation, be sure to include a note requesting the book To Seek and to Save. Our address is Truth for Life, P.O. Box 398000, Cleveland, Ohio, 44139. Now here's Alistair with an exciting invitation. How about you join me on a voyage to beautiful Alaska this summer? I'll be teaching the Bible on a seven-day tour of the Alaskan coastline aboard a Holland America cruise ship. This unique adventure will grant us an up-close look at God's amazing creation and all of its natural beauty, including the deep blue waters of the northern Pacific and the rich green pines of the Tongass National Forest. We'll actually stop in ports like Juneau and Sitka, Ketchikan, and Victoria, British Columbia, and some off-ship activities will include kayaking and salmon fishing. Most importantly, we'll be learning from God's Word, joining Laura Story and Michael O'Brien as they lead us in praise, 
and growing together in our love for the Lord Jesus. I hope you'll come along. And here's Bob to give you some more information. Find out more or reserve your spot for this trip of a lifetime when you go to deeperfaithcruise.com or call 855-565-5519. I'm Bob Lapine, hoping you'll join us tomorrow as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians called Grace and Peace. The Bible teaching of Alistair Begg is furnished by Truth For Life. Where the learning is for living.